Welcome to the Dermatology Interest Group Association podcast, or DIGA podcast, where we talk about everything from how to become a stellar dermatology applicant to interesting topics in dermatology. From research advice to interviewing tips, you will be prepared to follow the path to become a world-class dermatologist. Hello again, everyone. My name is Grace Hobayan, and I'm your host on this episode of the DIGA podcast. I talk with Dr. Lee Wheelis, Assistant Professor of Dermatology and Epidemiology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. We have a very in-depth discussion on skin cancer and organ transplant recipients. We hope you'll learn a lot from this episode. Without further ado, see you on the skin side. All right, everyone, welcome back to the DIGA podcast. I'm here with Dr. Wheelis, and he is going to introduce himself. Hey, my name is Dr. Lee Wheelis. I'm an assistant professor of dermatology and epidemiology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I did my undergrad at Davidson College and then an MD-PhD at the Medical University of South Carolina down in Charleston, and then came to Vanderbilt for both my prelim year as well as for residency and have stayed on as faculty ever since then. Wonderful. Dr. Wheelis, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Super excited to have you. No, certainly. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah. My first question for you is, what factors led you to choose dermatology? This was kind of a roundabout way to get into dermatology. I knew going into med school that I wanted to do something with oncology and you know, something that had a procedural aspect to it. And so really came in thinking I was going to be a surgical oncologist. When I got to my years in grad school for doing the PhD, the project that I ended up getting put onto, because this was right as GWASs were starting to come into craze, I wanted to get into the, the genetic epidemiology realm. And the project was one looking at the genetics of keratinocyte carcinomas in the general population. And so I did five years of research on, on skin cancer for my PhD. As part of that, what they had me do during those grad school years is I had one half day of clinic that I would go to that would be kind of relevant to my research. And so I got in with one of our dermatologists who was over at the VA. So I would see lots and lots of skin cancers. And, you know, after five years of doing that and doing all the skin cancer work, I realized I should really look into dermatology a little bit more. Here I am. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like an amazing opportunity. And I also had a surgical oncology rotation myself in my third year of med school, and I loved it. You know, I saw a lot of melanomas, of course, and and I think that's that's really interesting that you were able to spend so much time in a, a clinic during your PhD years. What were some of the most interesting cases that you that you can remember? Like, what were some of the most memorable aspects of that time during your PhD? Well, certainly, I think one of the one of the ones that that I always will remember seeing from grand rounds on uh, on dermatology was the first time I ever saw a patient with dairy AIDS, and it was a to this day probably the most severe case I've ever seen of it. Crusted erosions everywhere, had the wonderful smell that can come with that, and. You could just see this, the absolute profound impact it was having on this patient, even though it was not life-threatening to him, wasn't going to you know, have any, any limitation or you know, his function or things like that, just so profoundly debilitating for him. And that really stuck out to me as, oh my goodness, there are bad diseases that do not kill people. That's true. That's very true. It's true throughout dermatology, for sure. And, and I think the biggest thing about dermatology is that these are diseases that, again, while they're, a lot of them won't kill you, it's one that are very, very visible, and everyone around is going to be able to see that immediately. Like, you cannot look at somebody and say, oh, your blood pressure looks a little high today, although if you can, that person needs to get to the ED. <laughs> right. But yeah, just with uh, with the skin, it's it's right there. Mm-hmm. I think one of the one of the other ones, and this will probably segue into uh, to my research later, was seeing a patient in one of those surgical oncology clinics that we were you know, doing the the pre-op for a melanoma excision. He was either a liver or a lung transplant recipient. The man was just absolutely covered in AKs, in clinically apparent squamous cell carcinomas, scars everywhere, and this big melanoma on his shoulder that we were going to have to excise to a sentinel lymph node 
all that good stuff. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, how does somebody get this many skin cancers? And that's when the surgeon kind of said, well, he's, you know, he's a, he's a transplant patient. And this is kind of what happens with a lot of these patients. And that really is what kind of led me down the pathway of what can we do about this? And how, how can we keep people from getting so many skin cancers? Having multiple different types of skin cancers is, that just sounds very, very debilitating. I've heard that solid organ transplants can increase the risk of skin cancer is roughly 30 to 100 times. Yeah, tell our listeners a little bit about what type of research you did and, and what has come of it. Sure. So again, I am an, I'm a, a trained epidemiologist. So most of the stuff that I'm going to be doing is you know, on the, the epidemiology kind of slant. Certainly, as things have all been growing into the the same direction with epidemiology and biostatistics and computer science all now kind of coming together in this wonderful field called data science. That's kind of where I feel a lot of my stuff lies these days. I'll take a step back. The you know thirty to one hundred fold increased risk is I know what's out there in the literature. And certainly organ transplant recipients have a very, very high risk of developing skin cancers. But fortunately, a lot of those extreme risks were for some of the older immunosuppressants. We know that things like azathioprine and cyclosporin are just absolutely terrible for the skin. And those are the ones that are going to have that 30 to 100 fold increased risk. Fortunately, most transplant patients these days are on, you know, your mycophenolate mofetil, your tacrolimus, or your mTOR inhibitors. And all of those have much lower risks of skin cancer compared to those two older medications. And so while it's certainly not as high as a hundredfold, I don't think with these medications, it's still probably a good 10 to 30. Um, and so these are still very, very high risk patients. But one of the, one of the biggest things in this population and just in, about skin cancer in general is that skin cancer is unique among cancers in that for most of the stuff out there, cancer is a binary outcome. You have cancer, you do not have cancer, that's it. And so for decades, skin cancer has been treated the same way if it's even registered at all. And so it's been really hard to get good research on skin cancers. Transplant patients, that 30 to 100 fold, all of that is based upon whether or not a patient develops a single skin cancer. It makes no mention whatsoever of who is going to have one skin cancer versus who is going to have 100 skin cancers. And the risk profiles and the impact on those patients is dramatically different. But if we are not measuring the outcome with that level of granularity, we're not going to be able to tease apart kind of who are those, those super producers going to be. And so that's kind of what, what my work has been doing these past couple of years is laying the groundwork for getting the, a cohort of transplant patients established, getting a, a validated measure for skin cancers established, and then now really starting to get into the weeds of, okay, who are these patients that are getting so many? A, a tricky thing is that because there are so many skin cancers, I mean, there are more skin cancers every year than all other internal cancers combined by about two or threefold, that there is really no registry in the United States trying to account for every single one of these. And so you can try and look at, you know, path reports, you can try and look at, you know, diagnostic and procedural codes. But within our, you know, most healthcare systems in the United States are kind of an open system. And so you're going to have incomplete capture of a lot of the skin cancers. And especially if something is never biopsied, it's just treated empirically, and we don't really have that confirmation, that's going to be something that could be missed easily. And so this is, that's probably way more than you wanted to know about. <laughs> the, um, <clears throat> no, that's perfect. Establishment of just trying to be able to get at this question. Like I said, I'm an epidemiologist, right. so we want to have proper measurement of our exposure and our outcome. Yeah, I think that is really important. And so, yeah, I imagine it's easy to tell, you know, someone doesn't have skin cancer, or someone does have skin cancer, that binary thing. That's, I'm wondering what the specific measures are that you use to determine, does someone have multiple, like more than one skin cancer or multiple different subtypes of skin cancer, basically? 
Yeah, and so this was this was a project that I had done, I guess, a little over a year ago, and that was looking at here at Vanderbilt, we have a very busy derm path service that we get lots of the biopsies coming in. And so we tried to look at, okay, so of all the patients who have kind of their, their dermatology home here at Vanderbilt, let's take all of their biopsies, look at, you know, their ICD codes, their CPT codes, their, their ways that we would use all the administrative databases in that data set. Can we sync it up with the actual clinical data of the path reports that we have and see how good are those metrics. And so what we did find was that while, again, ICD codes are very good at identifying skin cancer cases, they're absolutely terrible at being used to count the number of skin cancers. There is just a huge discrepancy in the number of ICD codes that a patient got for each individual pathology report. For example, say a patient is diagnosed with melanoma. They have that single biopsy. They have a melanoma ICD code associated with the treatment with that, you know, with that biopsy. Then they have an ICD code associated with the excision. They have an ICD code associated with the procedure for the lymph node biopsy. Say they get immunotherapy. Every time that they come in for that treatment, they get an ICD code associated with that. If they have radiation, there's, you know, 30 to 60 ICD codes that get added to the chart for that same single skin cancer that they have. And so all that is to say that all the studies that are out there that use kind of a single ICD code to count an outcome or define a disease, this is this goes way well beyond just skin cancer. A lot of those are going to have lots and lots of bias. And so we need to do a much better job of really making sure we get the proper phenotype. And so what I ended up doing then is looking at if we just use the CPT codes, since most skin cancers are going to be treated procedurally, if we look at the CPT codes, how good a job does that do in capturing all of the, uh, the skin cancers that we have? And we would think it would be pretty high, but even so, the correlation between CPT codes and the number of histologically verified skin cancers that we had here was only about 70 to 75%. And we're still undercounting a good number of skin cancers. And while, yes, that's problematic in that, you know, we don't want to be missing any, if we're going to be drawing conclusions from this, it's much better that we're going to be undercounting rather than overcounting our skin cancers because we don't want to inflate measures of risk. And we know that anything that we have is potentially lower than what it actually is. I'm wondering if you've ever had to look through patients' notes to see if the number of skin cancer lesions has been documented within the note and correlate that back to CPT codes and everything. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was definitely part of the uh, the process for that study. And here at Vanderbilt, we have a, a wonderful resource called the synthetic derivative that is essentially a completely de-identified version of our electronic health record. So I can go into this and do kind of a, a keyword search, an ICD search, a CPT search, pull out all the patients that I need, go through de-identified versions of their chart and try and find that. Ever since I started this project, I personally have found myself writing much better notes as a result because, again, garbage in, garbage out. If we're not doing good notes, we're not going to be able to get good data from our notes. So all the, uh, all the variables that I would want to use in a study, I am now explicitly including in all of my notes. We can do natural language processing on them all we want, but if it is not documented, we are not going to have that variable. Right. So what does make a good note? What should med students and future residents know about what variables to include for the future? <laughs> uh, get a time machine. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> you know, it's, you always want to think about what's important without getting so bogged down and trying to include absolutely everything that, you know, now the note is, it's too difficult to read. It's not helpful clinically. And, you know, it's including stuff that's just absolute red herring. It, it's difficult and it, it takes experience and just some, some domain knowledge of what needs to go into that. As a dermatologist, it is probably beyond the scope of, of my practice to be able to include for, for my transplant patients, 
you know, what was their HLA mismatch and what, how many antigens mismatch did they have? What was their HLA type? What was their induction? But now I'm looking back and seeing, okay, well, actually all of this probably does matter in terms of what their skin cancer risk is. And mm -hmm. so I'm going to go back and think about how do I collect these from, from other notes and other sources? Like I said, a time machine is, is the way to go. I'll see if I can put my engineering degree to good use and work on that soon. <laughs> Thanks. Let me know. Yeah, we'll do. <laughs> Keep you posted. Mm -hmm. And through your work, I'm wondering if among the population of organ transplant recipients, are there more patients that have multiple skin cancer types? Or is it about 50-50 with those who just have a single skin cancer lesion slash cancer type, essentially? Yeah, yeah. And so actually, if you'll... Uh... If you'll humor me, I, I have the, the data up on my computer that I can actually... Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is what happens when you have two, uh, two uh, computer nerds talking with each other. <laughs> yeah, most folks are going to have more than one uh, type. And a lot of that, it is, it is going to be a lot of squamous cell carcinomas. But there are still a lot of patients that are going to get lots and lots of basal cell carcinomas, even if they don't get any other subtype of skin cancer. And that's one thing that, again, I'm looking into because I know the literature says that, you know, it's a four to one basal cell, the squamous cell in the general population. And that's flipped in the transplant population where it's more like a two squamous cells to every one basal cell and whatnot. You know, more recent data says that in the general population, it's more kind of a one to one with basils and squames. And if you look at individual patients among transplant recipients, who gets basils and who gets squames, again, it's roundabout even, but where we really see the big imbalance is those super producers. And so if we look at the total number of skin cancers, we are gonna see a lot of patients that just have astronomical numbers of squamous cell carcinomas in particular. Still trying to figure out exactly why that is. Mm -hmm. my, my hypothesis is that, and actually we have some good data for this, that a lot of the, the older medicines like the azathioprines and your cyclosporins, what those are really doing is in addition to causing immunosuppression and knocking out the immune surveillance and all that good stuff, they're also interfering with nucleotide excision repair. And so as a result, we're essentially giving these people an iatrogenic xeroderma pigmentosum phenotype. And so, of course, they're going to be getting lots and lots of skin cancers. And now cyclosporin in particular really knocks out the XPC molecule or just the functionality for it. And we know that patients with XP who have mutations in XPC in particular do have a predominance of squamous cell carcinomas over basal cells. And so it you know, it makes sense that when we're giving patients a medication that is essentially doing the same kind of thing, that we're seeing lots and lots of squamous cells in this population. You know, for all the uh, astute listeners who think, oh, well, you know, the tacrolimus does pretty much the same target as cyclosporin. Why are we not seeing the, the same risks with that? Well, that all comes down to the pharmacokinetics of that medication, is that whereas cyclosporin has excellent distribution to the skin, tacro really does not make it to the skin. And so that's why, you know, for in dermatology, systemically, we'll use a lot of cyclosporin for things like psoriasis, or if we need to get control of eczema or other things quickly, cyclosporin does an excellent, excellent job. We don't really use tacrolimus because it just doesn't get there. Little pearl for the uh, beyond the beyond the scope of this, but <laughs> no, but I, that's really interesting. I didn't even think of that because in medical school we're taught they're kind of in the same family, but we don't go so far as to say there are differences in the pharmacokinetic effects on the skin. So I think that's really important going forward. Absolutely, and that's yeah, that, that's one thing that if I can impress upon folks is that transplant dermatology is so much more than just skin cancer. In addition to, you know, this example of pharmacokinetics, just about every medication that we're going to give is going to interact with a patient's immunosuppression regimen, be in coordination with the transplant team and be mindful of that. Because if we think, oh, I'm just going to, you know, give somebody some fluconazole, knock out their, uh, 
their tinea that's rip roaring, you have just made their their prograph levels go haywire. And do not be the dermatologist who causes somebody to go into rejection because you're treating tinea or toenail fungus or something like that. Just don't do it. Right. What are the solutions to dilemmas like that that you've personally tried? You know, I think a lot of it is just coordination and communication with the rest of the team. It's such an imperfect science at this point that, you know, a lot of it is if we plan ahead, we can coordinate dose adjustments with, you know, lab draws to make sure that we're staying at the, the proper dosage levels and things like that. Sometimes it's just kind of unavoidable and we have a frank discussion of what are the, you know, risk benefits for doing something this way. Because I have probably a hundred transplant patients who have something like psoriasis or hydratinitis or other things that would require us generally to do some sort of systemic immunosuppression because transplant patients still get these diseases. And despite being on all these wonderful immunosuppressive medications for their transplant, again, because of characteristics of the individual medications, it's probably not hitting the skin. It's probably not hitting this disease and we might need to do something else. And so is this something that we can you know, adjust? Can we change medications? Can we add something else on um, that's still going to be safe and not put them at, at undue risk for infection, undue risk for potential malignancy if we are just absolutely knocking out their, their immune system? Or, you know, as, as I've been dealing with for the past three years, for COVID infection or for things like that. A lot of balancing and trying out alternatives that are reasonable. You can't, can't operate in a silo with transplant medicine. Right, right. That's for sure. I'm also wondering if skin cancers arise more frequently in specific types of organ transplants, say kidney, liver, what have you. Yeah, and so historically, there's been a number of studies looking at this, and they found that patients who get a heart transplant or a lung transplant have a much higher risk of developing skin cancers than, say, patients with a kidney or liver. And one of the thoughts behind this was that, okay, the liver is, you know, the immune system tolerates a liver very, very well. And so you don't need to hit them with immunosuppression quite as hard. Whereas a lung or a heart, if something goes wrong with that, that is rapidly fatal. And so we need to make absolutely certain that is not going to be rejected. And so patients just get blasted with immunosuppression with those two. And so that for the longest time has been the, uh, the dogma around this. Now, most recently, I did a, a paper looking at that in the Vanderbilt population and specifically the cancers that come after that first cancer. And so what we found was that when we looked at just kind of stratifying by the organ type, again, we found liver had the lowest, heart and lung had the highest, and then kidney was somewhere in between. But then when we took that second skin cancer afterwards, we found there is no difference whatsoever that all patients who have had a skin cancer after a transplant, you've got the same high risk of developing subsequent skin cancers. So that first skin cancer really kind of is a sentinel event to say, this is a high risk patient. But then I took that a step further and said, okay, well, what is it about all these different organ types? And if we think about indications for organ transplant. What are some of the most common indications for needing, you know, a heart transplant? We've got ischemic cardiomyopathy. What is one of the most common indications for needing a lung transplant? And that's going to be COPD. These are patients who tend to be much older. And so if you're getting a transplant at age 50 or 60, your baseline skin cancer risk is going to be much, much higher than, say, somebody who has lupus nephritis in their 20s and gets a kidney transplant in their 20s. And so now we're not comparing apples to apples. And so I said, let's, let's you know, break this down by age groups and see what happens. And what I found was that really the differences between organ types completely went away that it was really driven by age at transplant. 
And so it's it's important for us to, you know, still remember all the, the basic stuff that we know that skin cancer is far more common the older you get. And so if somebody is 70 years old and they're a liver transplant patient, don't think you're low risk. It's okay. But at the same time, if somebody has congenital heart disease and gets a heart transplant at birth, we don't need to be putting the fear of God into them that by age five, they're going to be getting skin cancers because it's probably not going to happen. Sounds like age is largely independent. It's like kind of its own variable. And then organ transplantation may or may not add on to that, depending on the individual. Depending on the, the individual, yes. Now, absolutely, there are differences in the immunosuppression regimens that will make an impact. We know that patients on mTOR inhibitors like sirolimus and everolimus have a much lower risk of developing skin cancers. Um, there's also a new medication out or new-ish called Volatisept. Our folks at Vanderbilt haven't used it a whole lot, or at least not, not the folks that have come my way. But I know a, a lot of other institutions certainly are using this a lot more. And we are seeing that the skin cancer risks with Volatisept are much, much lower than with kind of the, the classical regimens. And so hopefully if this can be shown to be at least as good, if not better, immunosuppressive regimen compared to some of the other ones, we might see the skin cancer rates be coming down dramatically among the transplant population. Is this another medication that has different pharmacokinetic effects slash mechanisms that make it be associated with a lower risk of skin cancer? So this one, it is a completely different mechanism. One of some of the other ones, it's just kind of carpet bombing your immune system. A bladder, it's actually a a biologic, it's a CTLA-4, kind of the the opposite of ipilimumab, you know, agonist, antagonist, and so on and so forth. And so it's a little bit more targeted in kind of putting the brakes on without just tearing the the brake pedal off. It also, again, without getting too much into the uh, the nitty gritty, so things like azathioprine, one of the, the big mechanisms for how that increases skin cancer risk is one, it absolutely generates free radicals like crazy. And so you just get that lots and lots of oxidative damage to the DNA. But also one of its metabolites gets incorporated within the DNA and acts just like a a sponge to soak up UV. The absorption spectrum has a maximum kind of right within that UVB range. That persists at measurable levels for, I think one study showed that it was five plus years after cessation of the medication. When I was early on in my training, I used a lot of azathioprine because it is really inexpensive. It is very well tolerated, and we have an excellent track record of knowing how to use this medication, and it works. But now that I'm kind of seeing a lot more of the downstream effects of that, I've really stepped back from using that one when when I have options. Because again, when you put somebody on that medication, you are condemning them to years of photosensitivity and increased skin cancer risk. So it's very important, these these different factors as far as medications and with the new biologics coming out. I think it will be interesting to see how that affects rates of skin cancer as we go forward. And I'm also wondering what sort of the next steps are, say, over the next 10 years or so. What are the unmet needs that still haven't been addressed? What are some of the solutions that are currently being worked on to further decrease the risk of skin cancer in organ transplant recipients? Yeah, and I think it's kind of threefold or or more. So first is kind of the identification of who are going to be our, our highest risk patients and can we intensely treat them or get them in early before they become those super producers. That's kind of the stuff that I've been focusing on most recently. Also next is trying to figure out, okay, well, which are going to be the cancers that really are going to be the very high risk ones that are going to metastasize, that are going to kill these patients. And there's been a lot of great work out of Brigman Women's with Chris Schmaltz and Emily Ruiz and their group, just trying to trying to identify what what goes into making a bad squamous cell and what is something that should really raise our red flags about that. Taking that a step further is 
Okay, so what are the treatments for these skin cancers? I know there have been for years in trials with kind of topical hedgehog inhibitors for basal cell carcinomas, but also we've just had uh, recently indications for using a checkpoint inhibitor for aggressive squamous cells and basal cell carcinomas for Merkel cell carcinomas. And checkpoint inhibitors have been an absolute game changer for metastatic melanomas. But we're also figuring out how can we safely use things like checkpoint inhibitors, things like TVEC, into these patients who we're actively trying to suppress their immune system. And so what happens if we take off the brakes to the immune system? Can they go into fulminant organ rejection? Spoiler alert, yes, we can do that. But again, can we do intralesional injection of these medications to try and just locally activate the immune system to fight off the skin cancer. Beyond all of this, let's talk about primary prevention. There was recently a study that came out in New England Journal looking at using nicotinamide as a means to prevent skin cancer. And that one, unfortunately, came to the conclusion that it was not helpful for reducing skin cancer risk. Now, this trial was problematic for a couple reasons. First off, it was underpowered. They had to stop recruitment because they were essentially going to run out of the, the medication that was being supplied to them for the trial. And so they said, well, we have who we have, we're gonna close enrollment now. But two, this was also the same group that had found a significant reduction in the number of skin cancers in patients using the nicotinamide several years prior. And so their ability to find patients who were not already on nicotinamide was very, very limited. And even so, within that study, they found a 30% reduction of squamous cell carcinomas in the nicotinamide group. So what I've been telling folks is whatever your practice was before this, don't change your practice solely based on this. I anecdotally have had a number of home runs, but for everybody, it's probably not going to be a home run. But when we look at it at a population level, we might see some overall reduction. We also see excellent reductions with acetretin and other retinoids. Again, issues of tolerability come in with that. And so trying to figure out who these highest risk patients are so that we're not just putting everybody on a medication that definitely does have side effects, definitely does have risks, and trying to maximize the benefits while minimizing the harms. And that's kind of the whole thing about personalized medicine. Exactly especially interested in seeing how the intralesional injections of medications might help address skin cancers in the future, especially since you're attempting to localize the medication to the skin. So that's pretty interesting. I think, uh, again, I think that uh, uh, Chris and, and Emily uh, up at Brigham just got a, uh, a case report out of, of a, a patient that they tried that in and kind of the protocol that they did. So definitely look into that. Yeah, will do. And so going back to when you were applying to dermatology, I'm wondering if your sort of interest in surgical oncology at the time played a role in choosing where to apply for residency or even where to where to go for a job as an attending. I had a very specific criteria that I was looking for. And so to all the med students listening, I apologize. This is probably going to make you tear, tear your hair out and be like, well, this isn't helpful. <laughs> I'm knew that I was going to go into academic medicine, did the PhD. My wife is also in academic medicine. She's a rheumatologist. And so she had gone straight through and not done a PhD or anything. So at the time that I was looking for residencies, she was looking for faculty jobs. And so we were looking for places that had good dermatology and good derm research, good rheumatology and room research, and would be in a place that we would want to live. One of the, the big things about Vanderbilt that drew me, and again, I've already kind of mentioned this once here, is just the remarkable bioinformatics infrastructure that we have here. And we have, I think, still the, the largest genetic database that's linked to an electronic health record outside the VA that's in the entire country. We have something like 350,000 patients who have DNA biobanking that right now we are currently undergoing whole genome sequencing with plans for that to be done, I think by 2028 for all 350,000 of them. And we're still accruing more. 
So we're just generating so much genetic data here that is, again, linked to everything in their electronic health record, all their medications, all their labs, all their path reports, all their images, all their notes. And so just being able to, to have a resource like that, that's really what made us want to come to Vanderbilt in the first place. As dermatology is a wonderful process for the match, <laughs> yeah, I, I ended up... I applied to only 17 programs that would be good for both me and my wife in terms of clinical and research opportunities. And fortunately it worked out where, uh, where we wanted to go. Yeah, that's great. I'm actually on a rheumatology rotation right now. And so, Excellent. yeah, there's quite a bit of overlap between room and derm, especially with the different medications that are used, especially biologics. And so I think I think those are those are some pretty good criteria for me as well. What does a typical week look like for you now that you're at Vanderbilt? This week particular isn't isn't probably the best time to figure out as in <laughs> so I'm I just got a, a big grant from the VA and so I'll be transitioning full time to the VA. But right now, what I have and what I've had for kind of the past, I guess, four years is I've had one day per week where I'm overseeing residents at the VA, overseeing the surgical clinic, overseeing the follow-up clinic, and then doing teleterms throughout the day. And then I had one day per week where I was seeing transplant patients and some gen derm patients, one half day per week where I was doing excisions and other skin surgeries and things like that. And then the rest of the time was going to be research time. And with, with this grant that I've gotten through the VA, I'll be transitioning to just two half days overseeing residents and then 80% protected research time, which hopefully should be able to get a lot more work done and get some, some good answers out to all the questions you asked earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And so do you have a specific transplant clinic? Yeah, yes and no. Um, yeah. I selected my clinic days to, or my, my half days to try and be on days when I knew that there were a lot of the other kind of transplant clinics open. Mm -hmm. I, I see patients from six states around six or seven. And so most of my folks that I see are not local. And so just trying to coordinate, when are they going to be in town? I'll see you then. I'll, I'll get you all fit into my schedule if you're going to be here and doing it that way. And so having, you know, one specific half day of this is when I'm going to see all my transplant patients it just wasn't wasn't serving the need as well as doing it as kind of a more discontinuous thing such that you know i might have 6 to 8 transplant patients in a half day and that's great and then i'll fill the rest of it with a lot of the kind of non transplant high risk skin cancer patients and then i still do plenty of your complex med derm i mean i, I hear rheumatology every night so i'm i'm right. seeing a lot of those patients as well I know you mentioned earlier, like say patients with lupus nephritis, they got the room problems. They got the, say they need a renal transplant and then catch and treat skin cancers on top of that. So a lot of overlap between many things for sure. And Absolutely. that's what makes complex med derm so, so interesting. Mm -hmm. So what advice do you have for medical students that are getting ready to apply for dermatology? Say any specific advice that you have for people in their preclinical years and people in their clinical years? Sure. So I get a lot of requests for folks to want to do research or do a research project with me and whatnot. If you are looking to do a research project, like an actual project, and you're a third year, you've already kind of missed the boat for when you're going to be able to get something done and get that on your ERAS application. You really need to start early with that because it just, it takes time to get a paper out and you want to make sure you're leaving yourself enough time to, to get that. Now, absolutely case reports and review articles and things like that are wonderful and those can be done a lot more easily and, and generally more quickly, um, but make sure that you are leaving yourself enough time if you want to delve into the research realm. I know a lot of schools, Vanderbilt included, does uh, require some sort of research rotation or exposure or activity as part of the um, part of the curriculum. Certainly, writing up a a case report of an interesting patient that you saw while on rotation, excellent. 
as, as much as you are able to, try and keep it to the patients that you yourself have actually seen. When the reviews come back in a couple months down the line, and you know the senior resident that you were working with who has now graduated and they're off at a job somewhere and you don't have their contact information, you can't remember the details about what was going on with this case. If you haven't seen them and you don't have that exposure, that's going to be really difficult to get that get that in properly. A lot of folks also have the misconception that you know having that that great research paper that's going to be you know your golden ticket into a dermatology residency, and it's really important to keep in mind that residencies are a clinical training. And so we really need to make sure that, you know, you are going to be clinically strong. So you have heard it from so many other folks, but I'll say it again, do well on your clinical rotations. And most importantly, be the type of person that you want to work with. If you, you know, look at yourself from the outside and you're like, oop, I would not want to be around that person. Don't be that person really be somebody that you would want to work with because dermatology is a small field. We all have to rely on each other in residency. And if you are the bad apple, that is not going to be uh, not going to be fun for anybody around you. Be someone who you want to work with. And in the you know exception of the research folk who say, you know what, I'm never going to actually practice clinically. I just want to do research but I want, need to be board certified so that I can run all my clinical trials or whatnot. Fine, your, your great research papers will probably get you in, but still we need to see that you can do the clinical work because dermatology is you know, probably 90% zebras, or at least the stuff that, that you learn in residency. And so if you don't know that clinical knowledge, if you can't get all of that, it's gonna be really difficult to be a successful dermatologist. Right. You really have to be good at thorough differentials, make sure that you don't leave any stones unturned, work well with everyone and every team that you're a part of. And of course, make sure that you have like enough quality research and case reports and whatnot. Sounds like those are some of the most important factors. Yeah. And I know everybody also gets so up in arms about the whole, you know, charting outcomes in the match, seeing that the, the average number of research experiences for Durham is something ridiculous, like 15 or something. Mm. Uh, please don't do that. We know that you are taking one abstract and farming it out to six or seven different conferences and presenting it all different ways. Please don't do that. Mm -hmm. we, we understand what's going on. We understand that everybody's stressed and frazzled about all of this. You know, I'd much rather see you really put time and effort into one good project than take one case report and trying to present it as many places as you can so that you can get, you know, 15 experiences. Right, right. And also taking into account that some people don't have a research year, some people do. And so that the yeah. average kind of goes up as a result of that. Absolutely. And some people also don't even have a dermatology department. And that's really putting those folks at a disadvantage if they're using only that metric. You know, I, I, I have no, no um, impact on our recruiting anymore, but I'm pretty sure that we don't use that here as we don't say, oh, you have only 13 research experiences. We're not going to interview you. We just want to see that you are willing to put in the work, really do some intense study outside of just the regular curriculum and see a project through to the end. That's one of the biggest things is that anybody can do a research project. You can just be a cog in the wheel, but really making sure that you have the stick to itness to uh, to get that project out, get it published. That's that's really going to be those people that are going to be successful because we know that you've got the drive. And you're not just going to say, oh, you got rejected from the first journal. So I guess that's it. I've had one, one paper in the past couple of years that it took me, it took me, I think, six journals mm -hmm. to finally get it accepted. And still the paper that I have, my most widely cited paper was rejected three times before it got accepted. Mm -hmm. That sort of just comes with it. It's 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 part of the package deal where I've noticed that it's generally easier to come up with ideas for projects than it is to go through the 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 logistics and see it all the way through to publication and trying to 
target certain journals, reformat if it gets rejected the first, second, third time. It's it's all about that persistence and that willingness to learn as much as you can about dermatology because there's so much, as you said, there's a lot more yet to be discovered too. And so, yeah, that's really important. And I'm also wondering, now that you are an attending dermatologist, what would you say to your past self in medical school? Hmm. I don't know. Depends on what year of medical school. Um, <laughs> let's see. What would you say to your preclinical self and your clinical self? Uh, my, my preclinical self, it would be, yeah, things are going to look very different than what you're thinking right now. <laughs> um. Yeah, And then once I kind of got into the, the clinical world, I, I think at that point I had a, a pretty good sense that I wanted to do dermatology. I've always been very kind of slow and deliberate in decision-making. And so it wasn't something that I just said, oh, you know, maybe I should, I should try dermatology right now. And then, like I said, after five years of skin cancer research and then doing my, my derm elective and thinking, okay, yep, this is what I want to do. I'm really then just kind of locking in, and I think it looks pretty similar to what I expected my uh, during my clinical years. So, mm-hmm. right. And then I also wanted to ask if you have any advice for, say, medical students or even people that happen to be listening to this before they enter medical school. What factors they should take into consideration if they are deciding to do uh, a single year of research or to do a PhD mm-hmm. during medical school. A PhD is a research degree. It is for the folks who want to be leading the research program, writing your grants, really making the discoveries. Now, that is absolutely not to say that a master's level cannot do that. One of my most brilliant collaborators here is a master's level biostatistician or bioinformatician, and wow. (laughs) But really, doing the PhD is a huge commitment and for the folks that want to do that great i applaud that dude i did my phd and i would still go back and do it again A, a lot of folks get disillusions during that time because you know they realize science is really hard and this is taking a long time and all of my friends have graduated now and you know when i was a third year, fourth year medical student, I was having my original classmates as my attendings. It takes a very long time to go through things like an MD, PhD. It takes a very long time to go through an MD in residency. And so just understanding that, yeah, it it is a sacrifice in terms of time. Um, but if you are really dead set on, this is what I want with my career and I want to be the one making those discoveries. I want to be the first person in the history of the world to have this knowledge. Absolutely go for it. Mm Because I think that's pretty cool. And would you say the same for someone who wants to do a single year of research, say between their third and fourth year of medical school? Mm -hmm. And that gets back to, for the folks who are thinking, okay, if my, you know, I just need to get more publications or get get a research year out, that research year is going to save me. Now, don't ever see it as that. Now, if you have a project or you know you are really just locked in on something, go for it. Definitely do that. But I see a lot of folks trying to use a research year as, you know, I don't know what I want to do, and I I just I need something that's going to make my application stand out a little bit more because I don't think I'm ever going to use this, but I just want to go into into this field. That, that, that's really not the right mindset to do it because you're not doing it to do that. Yes, there are ways to to boost your application. And if that is kind of the, the means to the end of getting a good residency slot, so be it. But really, I think those people are not going to be the ones who are going to get the most out of that year and be as successful in that year if you're really not going into it to do that, you know, to do the research work. Right. Yeah, it's it's not simply just for padding an application. It is for, you know, seeing certain projects to the end, getting certain bits of knowledge that you are really passionate about. Because, again, if you think about it, if you were, you know, now that I'm on the, the PI end, if mm-hmm. I have somebody who's just kind of there for the year to to get the degree and maybe get a publication, 
but not actually, you know, really help move projects along and things like that. I'm going to know that when I'm going to be writing that letter. Right. And yeah, you want to still be working hard, showing that, you know, you're passionate about this and you want to do it. And if it's just not there, you know, that is fine. A research year absolutely is not for everybody. And I would not say that everybody should do a research year, but you know, that's where being good clinically is going to be the best thing because most dermatologists are not going to be in academics. The vast majority of dermatologists are not going to be doing research. And so still making sure that you're as solid clinically as you can be is going to be job number one. Right. And dermatology is very fast paced in the clinic. And so it is important to have that really good work ethic and let that show. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Wheelis, it was such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I think I learned so much from your experience doing skin cancer research and sort of generating ideas for for future projects. Sorry, it's and been kind of kind of rambling back and forth. No, I think I and I think our our listeners will find this very interesting too, because I think going forward, this is all going to be very important for the care of our patients. And just taking into account the importance of medications, demographics, what have you, is just sort of reinforcing that clinical knowledge that we we must have and the clinical skills that we practice and develop. That's why they call it the practice of medicine. We're still finding out new things. We're, we're, we're doing what we know works. And then we're also looking to research to see what we can do better. That information is very helpful. So really thankful for that. Well, certainly. I'm wondering where listeners can reach you. Sure. Through um, my Vanderbilt email account. And it's just lee.e.wheelis at vumc.org. And you can probably find it on our website and certainly any any of my papers. All right. Yeah, that sounds good. I'll add it to the show notes. So yeah, again, it was awesome to have you on the podcast. And thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Yeah, certainly. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the DIGA podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Please send us any questions or comments to dermeinterestpod at gmail.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 